Hey, welcome to Win the Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost, and today on the pod, we've got something a little bit different for you. Uh, only a little bit different. Not not very much different, just a little bit. Uh, a little while ago, just before Easter, in fact, I was speaking at an event that was hosted by the church that I helped to lead, Edge Kingsland, called Reframing Easter. And on that evening, I spoke a bit about my own evolving views of the Easter story over time and, and the way I come to see it. Now, perhaps in contrast with, with the version of the story that I sort of embraced when I was a younger man, um, you know, I, I inherited, I guess, a, a theology of the Easter story that boiled things down to a kind of a four spiritual laws was sometimes the way it was talked about. And I talk a bit about that in, in today's episode. Uh, in this very kind of reducible to a gospel tract kind of form, uh, kind of thing, I was very passionate about it as, a, it as a young person. My views on that have evolved over time, and you'll probably be familiar with some of that. Uh, and so we hosted, we had, we had this evening where I shared a bit of that with with the people who were there, and a number of people have asked if that event was recorded. So we did record it, and I thought it'd be great to be able to release it here. So this is me talking about Easter today. And really talking about the meaning of the, the Jesus story overall, uh, the overarching kind of thematic threads of the story, how we understand the context into which Jesus came uh, and the kind of meaning that his death and then the symbol of his resurrection held in the first century, uh, at least some of that, some of the way I understand that, and then also how it might mean something for us now, perhaps not in the way that you might expect, I'm not sure but certainly in the way that it holds meaning for me now and invites me to live differently in the world. So that's what this episode is about. So it's, uh, look, it's a live recording, so even less slick than normal. <laughs> uh, and look, the, 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 the people there weren't mic'd, so if I tell amazing, incredible jokes that you can't hear laughter to, well, be assured, oh, I'm sure they were. <laughs> Anyway, I'll let you get it. I'll let you judge for yourself. Judge for yourself. Uh, the um, the evening did include some wine, which of course uh, I can't share over a podcast. But do uh, but do pour yourself a glass if that's uh, something that's appropriate for you to do. The um, other couple of things I should say before we jump into that, just as always, you can get in touch. Feedback at intheshift dot com on email, or you can go to intheshift dot com website. Uh, you can obviously find me on the socials, in particular Instagram is probably where most people find In The Shift to be uh, an interesting place to be. Uh, and of course, you can support the podcast through Patreon, patreon.com slash In The Shift. Chuck us a few bucks a month and that helps to keep this thing sustainable, helps it to move forward and so on. So uh, so feel free to you know do that if you've got spare cash and you feel like that'd be something you'd like to do. Otherwise, don't do it. Um, I think that's all I need to say about those things. Just a short intro today. This is episode 78 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. I'm going to just read a prayer by uh, Michael Lunig. As a way of opening. We pray for another way of being, another way of knowing. Across the difficult terrain of our existence, we have attempted to build a highway, and in so doing have lost our footpath. God, lead us to our footpath. Lead us there where in simplicity we may move at the speed of natural creatures and feel the earth's love beneath our feet. Lead us there where step by step we may feel the movement of creation in our hearts. And lead us there where side by side we may feel the embrace of the common soul. Nothing can be loved at speed. God, lead us to the slow path, to the joyous insights of the pilgrim, another way of knowing, another way of being. Amen. That's an invitation to take our time. <laughs> which I shall do. I want to take my time working our way through this conversation. Uh, and, and I suppose I want to do that because in many respects, uh, as I reflect on 
the story of Easter. You know, I um, for those, some of you know a bit of my history as someone who grew up very much immersed within uh, Christian spaces and um, parents who were pastors. And so I was surrounded by the images and themes and symbols and language of the Christian tradition from, from very early on for me. But what I ref- have reflected on as I have continued to live is, is just how at times I have experienced some of the language and the symbols and the imagery of faith, but often without the, the depth of story and experience that can sit beneath those things. Uh, and, and I was thinking about, about this kind of story of Jesus, you know, the, the Good Friday, Easter Sunday story, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And it's kind of, it's been boiled down, for me certainly as like a younger person, it was, it was mostly boiled down to like, this is how you get saved, and this is how you, and, and to be saved means I get to go to heaven one day. And that was kind of like the crux of this story. There was a thing when I was young called the four spiritual laws, which if you're an older person, may be familiar with. If you're a younger person, maybe never heard of. But anyone heard of four spiritual laws? Great. Um, they were often in like little gospel tracts, which were these little pamphlets that you used to give out to people when you were trying to convert them to Christianity, which I was very passionate about doing as a young man, a young boy, primary school. Um, you know, I made sure that Scott Anderson took that little pamphlet home and prayed the prayer inside. So the kind of thing that you would see in these little pamphlets were these four spiritual laws. And the four, the four laws, the way it worked, they're not really laws, but there was four ideas. The first was God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. So that's a good start. Sounds pretty good. Um, but the second was, unfortunately, you're a sinner. And, is, and because you're a sinner, you're separated from God. And in fact, there is a giant chasm between you and God that cannot be crossed. And this is a problem, of course. And no matter what you do, you're not going to be able to cross that chasm because your sin is too great. And God is so holy that God can't just sort of extend a a bridge, so to speak, just casually across the chasm. There has to be some kind of payment for the bridge to be able to be built, right? Essentially across the chasm. So that's the kind of thing. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but you're a sinner and there's a big chasm between you and God. Then thirdly, back to good again, sort of, (laughs) Jesus died and then his death was then the payment that God needed uh, in order to make the bridge between you and God so that you didn't fall into the fiery chasm but managed to get across to where God was. And then the fourth of the points was Jesus has done that for you, but in order for you to get access to the bridge, you've got to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, and, and then God can forgive you and you get to go to heaven. Yes. Does that sound familiar to anyone as a general schema? All right. And that may be something like, you, I don't know all of you, so you might be like, yes, he's preaching the gospel right now. In which case, good. Hold on to that. And then come with me on a journey of curiosity. Because uh, <laughs> I want, you know, I do, I, I want to respect that that may be something that resonates for people. But uh, I want to suggest, at the very least, there's a, there's a different way of looking at the story than that. And there's a lot, at, at the very least, again, there's a lot more going on in the story than that. And I mean, from my perspective, something different. So I'm going to talk a bit about that, all right? Everybody okay so far? You're, you're good. One of the funny things about those like four spiritual laws, or like that schema of understanding the, the, the like the gospel, is that the story of Jesus is kind of largely forgotten in that schema. It doesn't really sort of matter what Jesus said or did as long as he died. That's like the main thing that he had to do. And so really he kind of kind of dropped down at any point of history and and died, and that would have sorted things out, you know. And Martin Luther, actually one of the leaders of the, of the Reformation, was, was very much of the view that anything Jesus said and did before he died isn't relevant to us today. It's only from sort of death and resurrection onwards that it starts to be about us. Everything before that was, in his view, like an old covenant. Again, disagree with Martin Luther, but he's not around to tell you about it. So um, that's 
indicative, I suppose, of the way sometimes, like maybe Jesus was like, said some interesting things and, and he healed some people. So like I was a, a, a Pentecostal kid, so I was always trying to do that as well because um, that seemed pretty exciting. But I feel like, uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, I am someone who thinks the story of Jesus, uh, trying to understand like the death, the Easter story without understanding the story uh, is, is not very helpful. We end up with some very thin and shallow um, ways of understanding what's going on in the story. So, uh, so what I want to do kind of in the first half is tell the story again, uh, some of which or a lot of which might be familiar to a bunch of you, but that's okay. And then in the second part, I'll, uh, we'll have a little bit of a, a break and then kind of reflect back on that story and what meaning we might draw from it um, for us. Right? Good. Okay. Let's see how we go. So let me see if I can recap the story of Jesus for you uh, in as succinct but informative way as possible. You'll probably know, I'm sure, that the Jesus story comes into a particular context, a particular time, a particular people, a particular ethnic and cultural identity. He, he is a man born into space and time, right, like, like we are in that sense. Um, so I'm not going to think of like Jesus as magical baby who floats down, but as real like person who is placed within space and time uh, like we all are. And, and his story is placed within the experience of the Jewish people and, and the story of Israel. The people of Israel themselves at that time understood themselves primarily or like the, one of the central um, motifs or central identity-forming ideas of them as a nation and as a people was that they were liberated from slavery in Egypt. So we go back into like the Old Testament and read Exodus. That became the central defining story of their identity as a people. They were slaves who had been freed by God, delivered. That was their salvation. That was their story of salvation. Um, that language of salvation didn't, for them, refer to going to heaven one day at all. In fact, that's not mentioned there in any way. Salvation for them was being saved from oppression and slavery and violence in, in a powerful empire and being liberated from that. Uh, and whenever sort of later on they would, get a, they would sort of lose touch with their identity and with their story and they became slave owners themselves at certain points of their story, then these um, figures called the prophets would emerge and would say, don't you remember who you are? You were once slaves who were liberated and, and calling them to justice. So that's the kind of framing notion of salvation in the story of Israel. And in fact, they use that term salvation over and over again throughout their journey whenever they are experiencing some kind of threat that they need to be saved from. Uh, so if you read like a lot of the Psalms, which are their, you know, they're all their ancient hymns and songs and poems, they keep, you know, they call out to the Lord for salvation. The, the Lord is our salvation because he is the one who like literally saves us. That was, that was the way they viewed God, viewed their story, made sense of themselves. Now, they did have like practices and rituals and sacrifices as well that made, helped them to uh, feel like they could make peace with God. But again, that had nothing to do with like a, eternity or eternal life. That was about them as a people um, making peace with God and with, with each other. So they had all of these rituals and practices and sacrifices that would um, help them acknowledge the violence, the harm, the other stuff like that that would take place within their community uh, and... Um, it was a, those rituals and practices and sacrifices were ways essentially of bringing those before their God and their priests and and finding peace. And those sacrifices all took shape in different kind of ways. If you just want to read a long list of how to make a mess, then Leviticus is like, you know, your kind of manual. But the sacrifices sort of look different. You know, some of them you would you would bring in and, and kill these animals and then eat them together in a feast, and that was one of your sacrifices. And there were other rituals, like so they brought a goat in, and then they would like symbolically place all of the sins of the people on the goat, uh, and then they would send the goat out into the like into the desert, and he would essentially carry all their sins away. So there are all these different ways for them as a people to make some sense of how they could find peace with God and with each other as a community. 
and, and then they would call out to God for salvation when they needed rescuing of some kind. All right? Yes. And this is important because this is the story that shapes the understanding of like Jesus' time and his own understandings of salvation and this kind of language that we find used throughout the whole story. The journey of like Israel then takes them to this crisis point. So they go through these kind of cycles of, of um, in, in the way they tell their story and the way they make their sense of their story much later when they're kind of compiling it all, they, they narrate their story as one of these cycles of kind of wandering off track and then returning to God and then wandering off track and returning to God. And then ultimately they wandered so far off track that God allowed them to be destroyed. That's the way they narrate their own story and their own experience. And so ultimately this kind of comes to a climax in the, when the emergence of the Babylonian Empire, which becomes a very powerful empire in the ancient Near East at this time. A king, if you're familiar with, I used to read Old Testament comics when I was a kid. Tremendous. And, uh, and they were big on all these stories. So I, I still have like the images in my head of like what all the characters look like. Yeah. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and, you know, and Daniel and Daniel in the lion's den and all, all that kind of stuff. That's all centered around that moment of the, the, this powerful Babylonian empire emerges, lays siege to Jerusalem, and ultimately the city is destroyed, the temple is burned, the wall is torn down, and they are not saved. And that's a, that's a crisis point in their identity as a, as a people. Why were we not saved? And the way, again, they make sense of that is because we were unfaithful, because we were, God allowed us to be destroyed uh, because, of, because we didn't stay holy and faithful and, and pure to God. So um, they were scattered throughout the ancient Near East at that time into all sort of parts of, of the world most... Most of the population was either carried off into exile or were scattered into other, other countries. And they start to devote themselves to some kind of purity as a way of getting back in God's good graces so that they can, so that hopefully God will ultimately restore them. That's, again, the way they're kind of making sense of their experience. And they start to talk again, the prophets begin to, um, speak of a coming liberation of some kind where things will be made right, things will be, justice will be done, their, you know, their oppression will end, uh, violence will cease, and, uh, and the world will be healed as we are restored. That's the kind of way they start to understand their story. And they, and they start to talk about a, a deliverer or someone who would be raised up to liberate them because even though ultimately then they get to go back and rebuild their city, they are still ruled over by foreign empires, which to them is not the dream. That's not what they feel is their God-given kind of right in the world. So um, they go back, they rebuild Jerusalem, but they continue to be ruled over by a, a range of empires. There's the After the Babylonians, you get the Persians, and then you get the Greeks, Alexander the Great, and that whole empire and then that empire splits up into four and then there's sort of a, their their piece of real estate used to be contentious that part of in the middle east still is it's kind of this right slice of land between these it's where all of these sort of places converge and so the greek empire after it splits this kind of tussle over who's going to control that region and so on and so they continue to live under this kind of thing and then ultimately uh, it's the Roman Empire who come rolling on through. So by the time we get to the time of Jesus, uh, we'll get to Jesus, we, uh, we're dealing with the Roman Empire in charge. And you're probably familiar with that if you're familiar with some parts of the story. And it's why we sort of leave the Old Testament um, with sort of a sort of sad return to Jerusalem and a one day things will get better when we are delivered. And then you start... The, the New Testament with an entirely different social situation. Now you've got um, them back in Jerusalem, but the Roman Empire has spread through that whole uh, region. You've got, you know, and the Roman Empire was, a, was an empire of absolute power. You had what was called the Pax Romana, which was the Peace of Rome. Uh, and the Peace of Rome uh, was not like, can't we all just get along kind of peace. The Peace of Rome was, we will be so powerful and crush our enemies 
and it would be foolish to resist. And so that makes peace. And in a sense, they were right. You know, it is a way of making peace. Um, crush your enemies and, and be the strongest in the room and let everybody know that if they get out of line, you will die. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty straight way to put it. Yep. Um, so, so that's the Pax Romana. That's, that's the peace of Rome and it's across the empire. And um, they actually, certainly before Jesus came along, they were already using the terms gospel. So the gospel of Rome and salvation. These were terms that were used in, in a Roman vision of the world as well. Um, for anyone do classics back in the day or recently? Yeah, a few, few hands. So forgive me if I get my details. Clint's like an avid like, history reader, so you can correct me, Clint. But um, Octavian defeats Antony and Cleopatra. Yes. Uh, and takes control of uh, the Roman Empire and rises to become Caesar Augustus and to become this kind of uniter of, because there'd been all of these sort of factions within, within this sort of emerging Roman world. And then Octavian, who becomes Caesar Augustus, rises to the top, defeats um, Mark Antony and Cleopatra and becomes the, um, the emperor, the Caesar. And he's seen in at least, I mean, I would imagine a lot of the things that are written about him were probably... Um, Approved by him. So uh, he is called the saviour of the empire. He um, brought stability and peace to the region, you know. One of the ancient inscriptions about him says, uh, Providence, which is kind of, they use that in, probably instead of God, really. Providence, by producing Augustus, has sent us and our descendants a saviour who has put it into war and established all things. So this was their way of seeing Caesar, he came to be worshipped and celebrated as their saviour. He took on a kind of divine kind of status. He comes to be described as the son of God. Um, again, familiar language if we're used to reading any of the stories about Jesus. Many of you will probably know that in the, the Roman world at that time then and into the first century, uh, the coins, you know, their title of the Caesar would be Lord and Saviour. That would be the, the title that would be inscribed on, on the coins along with an image of the Caesar. And, um, and there are all these ancient inscriptions as well that refer to all of this as the gospel of Rome. Uh, and the gospel is a term that basically means news that brings great joy. So the news that brings great joy, the gospel, um, was at this time not the four spiritual laws <laughs> or anything to do with Jesus. The gospel was the empire is glorious. The empire has brought peace and stability to the world and our great Lord and Saviour Caesar holds it all together, the Son of God, right? That's, that's like the gospel in Rome. Cool? Mm, all right. So um, you just had to crush all your enemies along the way. So you've got that happening. And then within that, you've got the Jewish people, kind of this comparatively small group, although quite rambunctious and um, a bit of a sore spot for the empire because they keep trying to revolt uh, because they've got in their, in their, and deep in the bones of them as a people is we are not supposed to be ruled over by a Roman empire. We are the, you know, we are the people of God and God is going to deliver us and so on. And there have been times when they thought their deliverer indeed had emerged or different deliverers did emerge. They, you know, uh, nearly 200 years before Jesus, uh, a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus had risen up against the oppression of a, one of the ruling um, leaders of one of those split Greek empires, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, which if you're having children, it's a catchy name. Although he's a bad guy, so don't know, don't call him that. Interestingly, speaking of names, Judas Maccabeus, right, rises up against uh, or leads kind of a, a revolt. Uh, it starts off kind of in the countryside, kind of, you know, it's like, sort of every movie, you know, where they start with gathering small groups of people and doing raids and then they slowly build momentum until suddenly they're actually able to take back Jerusalem, cleanse the temple, restore um, worship and, and the priesthood and all of these different things. And this gets, um, so, so there's, there's rumours certainly going around at that time that Judas Maccabeus is, the he's the one we've been waiting for. He is the Messiah, he's the deliverer, making Judas a very popular name. And he ends up uh, being killed in battle. But he becomes 
And that whole story of the liberation of Jerusalem under Judas Maccabeus is what Hanukkah centers around, which in our calendar is kind of in that lead up to Christmas, the Jewish, Jewish festival of, of Hanukkah. It's, it's this kind of story sits within their memory as what might be possible. And one's going to come along, maybe like King David of old, or maybe like Judas Maccabeus, who's going to come along and, and deliver us and deliver the people. Yeah? Okay, good. Still with me? Take that as a resounding affirmation. So, so that's going on for the Jewish people. There's this anticipation. And there's also this, as I mentioned before earlier, this kind of conviction they have that their experience of suffering had been because of their unfaithfulness to God. And so they set about trying to be as faithful to God as they possibly could. Certainly the religious leaders in particular at this time were very concerned with that. And so um, they were trying to make sure that as many people as possible followed as many of the rules as possible so that God would be pleased and ultimately deliver them and send them the saviour that they were longing for. So it's into this world with the Roman Empire and this kind of Jewish kind of ferment that Jesus comes along. And there are lots of things, of course, I could say about Jesus. Quite a notable figure. But I think that backstory actually helps us kind of make some sense of the story itself and understands how people, why people react to Jesus in the way that they do um, and the kind of language that he's using as he's going about doing his thing. Um, so one of the things he begins to do when he first starts to, to go around and, and do his ministry is preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, which in itself is very provocative language because there's already a gospel in town and it's Rome and that's a very powerful one. So going around talking about a gospel and a kingdom is, is not a good way to get into the, like, the good books of the, of the powerful people. They're very on edge in these regions about possible revolutions and revolts at any time. And so uh, Jesus starts to talk about this gospel of the kingdom of God. He's, he's doing this and he's starting to attract crowds of people, which again would make you nervous. The curious or sort of the unexpected thing about it, and I think this is where they, they can't quite figure out what's going on with Jesus, is that he doesn't seem interested in turning that into some kind of guerrilla warfare revolution in that sense. At times they try to make him the leader of that kind of revolution, but he refuses. So they're not quite sure exactly what's going on, but it's worrying. Let's say that. And then some of the Jewish religious leaders, um, not all of them, but some of them, are also uh, a bit concerned about what's going on because... Um, some people are starting to call this Jesus the one we've been waiting for, right? The Messiah, uh, the, the deliverer who's going to come and deliver us. And yet he's not spending any time with them as the kind of the, well, he spends a bit of time with them, but most of the time he spends with them, he seems to be um, giving them a hard time. <laughs> and then seems to be going and having a great time with people down the road, which is not us. And so they're a bit sort of trying to figure out as well, is this guy, what, where is this guy coming from? What's going on here in this story? And they're certainly a bit put out. And the fact that he seems to break a lot of the rules that they're spending so much of their energy trying to keep because that's so God will like save them. And so this is a very difficult time for them in terms of their trying to make sense of who Jesus is and the kind of ruckus he is causing. Even Jesus' own disciples seem pretty confused most of the time about what Jesus is up to and what he's doing. And so they seem to sort of be a bit antsy for like the kingdom. So when's the, when does the kingdom turn up? You know, when, when, when is this all going to go down? Um, should we go get some weapons? You know, they, they, they at times they have those kind of conversations. Or shall we call fire down on the villages? You know, um, which, which suggests they, they weren't quite picking up what he was putting down. And, you know, when, when the kingdom, when basically when you're on your throne and ruling your kingdom, again, they're not talking about heaven here, when you're on your throne and ruling your kingdom and we've defeated our enemies, can we have like special places at the table and make us really awesome, you know? So instead of buying into any of all of this, Jesus seems interested in something a bit different, a different kind of, path to salvation, if you like. 
And he doesn't seem particularly interested in another round of um, the cycle of rebellion and revolt. In fact, a lot of the warnings Jesus gives, you know, scholars would interpret as him warning them not to go down the path of violent revolution. Because if they do, they will be crushed. And it will just lead to death, right? This is one of Jesus' kind of big warnings to his contemporaries at the time. And so instead, what he seems to see as core to salvation is this radical kind of love that crosses all of the various political and religious boundaries that have that have caused everyone to order themselves in the way that they have at that time. He wants people to love their enemies. He wants to spend all of his time with people who are out of either kind of system. So he, you know, they're out of the religious club, maybe because they're sinners in terms of how the religious folk describe them. Uh, And people who are out of the political club because they're powerless, they're marginalized. He doesn't spend time sort of walking around sort of cozying up to the movers and shakers. He is interested in spending his time with the the untidy rebel of kind of, of losers, right? In terms of the way in which that would have been seen from those with any kind of power, uh, kind of wasting his time in many respects, it seems. And so you see this kind of conflict between the religious leaders and Jesus in terms of they keep being concerned about managing everybody's behavior and making sure the rules are being followed and identifying those who aren't following the rules and making sure they know that they have displeased God and, and their leaders and will be shunned from the community. Jesus seems mostly concerned in, you know, Jesus, if, if we were to use the language of like sin, which is a word that can just resonate uh, differently with people depending on how it's been used in your life. But if Jesus was to talk about like, if if there was like a a sin that seemed to get Jesus most worked up, it was the sin of excluding people because of judgment. That was the thing that for him was the the great, one of the great things that he was confronting uh, among his religious community. And so this is the thing he names most often as being a problem within his, his community of faith. And he was observing or noting the way, if you like, that religious power was being used very similar to the way the religious power was being used. These were just different forms, the same kind of way of crushing people and of causing suffering and exclusion and marginalization. So all of this has a way of upsetting everybody, which is what he tends to do everywhere he goes. Um, And, you know, he's got this very unlikely group of people following him around Sick people, poor people, disabled people, sex workers, you know, uh, drunks. These are, <laughs> these are the kind of motley crew who are drawn to Jesus' message, which I, I think is kind of wonderful. Ultimately, as kind of the climax of all of this, yeah, this is, I've drawn this out, haven't I? Yeah, good. The climax of all of this is Jesus' journey toward, his final journey toward Jerusalem, which is the center in that region of, of the religious power and the political power of that part of, of the empire certainly the center of religious power in his community and also the local center of political power in the region. And he goes there at the time of Passover, which is a time when the people of Israel celebrate their liberation from their oppressors in Egypt uh, and their salvation. And he goes there at that time and people warn him not to because they're like, it's a very testy time to go wandering into Jerusalem talking about the kingdom. Uh, and, and yet he remains committed to this uh, as, as this kind of outworking of what it, what it is he feels he needs to do, which is to go there and symbolically confront all of this power with a different vision of life. And so there are a couple of things that happen that you may be familiar with that kind of serve as like symbols of this like confrontation of power. One is that he, he enters the city uh, riding on a donkey. Uh, all the crowds kind of gather. And um, this coming Sunday actually is like Palm Sunday in the, in, the, in the Christian calendar, which is a memory of that riding into town, right? And he comes in, it's this kind of paradoxical confrontation of the Roman Empire because he comes in and all the crowds chant, blessed is the king of Israel, which is very, um, it's going to get you in trouble right? If you think about the masses kind of lining the streets and announcing the coming of, of a king, blessed is the king of Israel. Uh, they, they, they are chanting Hosanna, which is a, a, like an ancient Hebrew word, which basically just means 
save or savior or save please, some kind of form. It was like, it literally means save, but it kind of got turned into an expression of, of kind of exclamation, which I never knew when I used to sing Hosanna a lot. Hosanna in the highest, which was a, which was a song back in the day, in the uh, 90s, 80s, 90s, both probably. So he comes in and the sort of curious thing about his triumphant entry into the city is that there are no troops, no swords, no, no kind of, no signs of this being anything violent, but that is still a kind of a threat to political power in the region. And then once he gets into the city, then he goes to the temple, which is the center of the religious power, and then he flips the tables and kicks out all the people who have been extorting money from the poor and vulnerable. And again, this kind of symbolic act of confronting religious power that had been used to um, cause suffering. Right, so both of those two acts are kind of the, in the last week of his life are these two big symbolic acts that it seems he feels are necessary in order to demonstrate what his vision of the kingdom looks like. It doesn't look like that or that. It looks like something else. It looks like all of this rowdy rabble all being included. It looks like love that crosses and transgresses all of these boundaries that we've set between one another. And it looks like a confrontation with any system that seeks to use power over one another in order to cause suffering. All right? Okay. Now, that manages to annoy everybody, unsurprisingly, which I think Jesus seems to anticipate. His kind of moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is this lead up to Easter, is him wrestling with what he's about to do. And I, and I don't think, the way the Gospels tell the story, it's not Jesus there going, I know exactly how this is all going to play out. It's going to be, I'm going to go there and then they're going to arrest me and then they'll be, but then they'll kill me. But then three days later, I'll like come back. And I don't think, there's no indication in the Gospels. There's a, there's a sense that he, he believed God would vindicate him. He believed that God was on his side and that what he was doing was right. But he's wrestling with this, should I follow through? You know, am I going to follow through with what I feel in my heart I need to do at this time? So in the end, he does. And the crowds who kind of welcome into the city, you know, that all goes pretty well. But then not too long later, he ends up through a series of events being arrested. And then through sort of a mixture of religious corruption and political power, people managed to conspire ultimately to have him like convicted of something that they, you know, basically, there's this kind of thing of like the, the Romans can't quite find the right reason to convict him because although he's said all this stuff, he's not been violent. Uh, and the, the Jewish people were sort of like, well, he's, some of the Jewish leaders are saying that he's, you know, blaspheming and and, and various things. In the end, they managed to come up with some concoction of that that leads him to execution. In the end, the crowds don't want Jesus. And perhaps that's because in the end, he doesn't look quite like what they want. He rode into the city all triumphant on his donkey, but then he didn't do anything with that. He didn't rise up against the Romans and call us all to arms and said he let himself be taken and now he's let himself be beaten. Uh, and so there's the scene when Pilate offers them Barabbas, who's like a, a zealot, kind of a revolutionary against Rome, or Jesus. Who do you want? You want Barabbas or Jesus? And they choose Barabbas. They choose the zealot. They choose the revolutionary because he's the kind of guy perhaps we would prefer rather than this Jesus who has let himself be sort of humiliated in this kind of way. All right, I think we're getting to the crunch of the story and then we can have wine. Uh, so there's this, in Jerusalem, at the climax of this story, this confrontation with all of these forms of power that then conspire to have him killed. And essentially what happens here is that Jesus has stood for a gospel and a kingdom that is about the poor in spirit, the mourning, the meek, the the prisoner, the blind, uh, the sick. You know, th these are in Jesus' words. These are who his kingdom is is kind of centered around. It's going to include all of these people that have always been pushed to the edge, and 
it's not going to buy into the gospel of Rome and it's not going to use religion and God in order to crush and create suffering. Instead, it's going to be this gospel and kingdom centered around an entirely different way of being in the world. And as usually happens, power has a way of trying to crush that kind of story because although it's not violent, it's very subversive and can cause problems and instability. And if uh, the Romans liked one thing, it was stability until much later on when they got very distracted by orgies. <laughs> that was a totally necessary side, side comment. <laughs> so ultimately, and, I, and I'm just trying to tell this story in the way in which I see the Gospels unfolding it, which is they don't do a whole lot of kind of, oh, and God had tried to sort of, God wanted to kill Jesus on the cross to bridge the chasm between you. That's not really the way, in fact, the Gospels tell the story at all. They tell the story of Jesus is ultimately killed on what we acknowledge as Friday, the Friday, you know, the Good Friday, um, because he's upset powerful people with his radical kind of transgressive revolutionary message of love and embrace and inclusion instead of siding with the power of Rome or the power of his religious um, colleagues. That's ultimately, he, he experiences the full force of, of violence and, and so on in death, in execution. And we have this strange thing in the Christian tradition of like this moment becomes the center of, of a religious tradition. And so we have like a, you know, we have these images of um, a cross. And depending on your tradition, sometimes the cross will be empty or sometimes the cross will have Jesus on it. But it's a very strange symbol to have at the center of a religious tradition, to have a symbol of a man being executed by the state, you know. It's shocking. It's not shocking to us because we're used to seeing crosses everywhere. We put them on top of the churches and all over the place. We make them look beautiful and lovely and gold and shiny and all sorts of things we can do with them. But ultimately, it's like a shocking symbol to have at the center of a faith tradition. Um, but that shock is in some ways kind of central to the revolutionary nature of the story, which is that it was in refusing to take up violence and instead confronting power but giving himself up in love, Jesus exposes violence and harm for what it is and offers a different kind of way. Now, before we break, I guess the good thing about the end of that story is that at the end of the Gospels, not a lot of space is given to it given how sort of interesting it is, but he comes back, you know. So there's a resurrection situation at the end of the Gospel stories. And the way the Gospels tell it is essentially that that resurrection is like vindication. It's an affirming of Jesus' vision of the kingdom and of Jesus himself. It's a way of, and again, scholars have all sorts of different ways of interpreting resurrection and stuff. But aside from kind of all of that, like the symbolism of it is that in rising, there is the sense that although it doesn't look powerful, although it doesn't look like it will win, in the end, this vision of uh, a kingdom grounded in love and self-giving and service and inclusion of the vulnerable is ultimately going to be the thing that lasts and overcomes in the end. And so the resurrection becomes the symbol very much of that in the Christian faith. All right? Okay. That's the story. All right. We've just done the story. I spent probably more time on the, the background story and then whooshed through the actual story. Uh, sorry about that. But I, I, I think in some sense, the, the reason I see that as so important is because like the language that's being used in the story already has a context for it by the time we get to the story of Jesus. And if we don't, sort of, and if we don't see that or understand that, then sometimes we can think this is the first time any of these terms are being used. And certainly that was the case for me when I was younger, when Jesus was my personal Lord and Savior. I had no idea that that was a phrase used by Roman Caesars before Jesus came along. I thought that was Jesus' special title, you know? Okay, so let's let's do some reflection back on the story and think about what it might mean. And uh, again, I want to emphasize that really the story is not about how to get to heaven one day. Which I suppose, it's, it's much more simple when it is, because then it's like, cool, he died on the cross so that I can pray my prayer and um, and secure my ticket. But... There's, there's something different going on in the story than that for me. And um, 
Jesus does talk a bit about this sense of two different ways of living. And one of the images he uses for that is like a narrow path or a broad path, right? And he says the narrow path leads to life and the broad path leads to destruction. And again, probably as a younger Christian, I was taught that that was like the, the narrow path goes to heaven and the broad path goes to hell. But it, that's, not, that's not what he's saying there. But then instead there is this path we can walk that leads to life, but that it's not necessarily always that popular. The easier path is to like go with the flow of power and the way in which the world is structured. And if there are people who are kind of excluded, that's cool. We'll leave them excluded because it's much easier to just go with the masses than it is to reach across those lines. That kind of thing. It's it's easier to judge than it is to forgive. You know, like all of these ways and things he's talking about in his parables and his stories and his even in the way he's, he, he reaches out and embraces all of these people, he is inviting a reflection on a different way of being in the world, but I think he recognizes that it's not always that popular. But it does lead to life. That's, that's ultimately Jesus' claim. And we have to decide whether we agree with that claim or not, I suppose. So I want to, as I said, um, touch on a couple of things. One, I want to talk about what it means to say Jesus died for our sins, or what it could mean and couldn't. Two, um, how the story reframes our ideas of God. And three, what salvation might look like then in light of all of that. So let's see if we can do that before we finish. All right, okay. Let's start with the Jesus died for our sins thing because that's quite a big one, isn't it? And there's, there's a bunch of language in the New Testament that, that circles around this idea. You have the four Gospels that tell the story Although a lot of the other New Testament is written at a time when those four Gospels weren't necessarily circulating particularly widely either, or at least some of some of it wasn't. So it's not like everybody's sitting there with the Bible having these conversations. You know, they're, they're sort of figuring it out as they go along. They're reflecting back on the story as or the bits of the story they've heard even and and trying to make some sense of that and think about what that might mean for them. And there are all sorts of like images and metaphors that are used in these writings to, to describe what they think might have happened in this story of Jesus. And there are some words that perhaps unsurprisingly, because of their history with the story of liberation from slavery in Egypt and the Passover story, there is, and that the Passover weekend is the weekend where Jesus dies and rises, right, in the Easter story, that they use language related to slavery and liberation when they start to talk about how Jesus has, has kind of, what Jesus has done for us. So there's language like ransom, there's language of redemption, and redemption was a, a, a like a thing that was paid in order to um, accomplish freedom for slaves. So there was a redemption price that would ensure like slaves could be freed. And... Um, and so there's that kind of play on the whole slavery idea. And, and Paul in particular, who's one of the authors of some of the New Testament, um, he, he talks about this kind of slavery that we have been liberated from is not just from powerful empires out there who want to crush us and kill us, but that we also need liberation, if you like, from our own propensity to violence and our own propensity not just to physical violence but to harm and to the way in which we treat one another. And that we kind of, we get stuck in these systems and cycles and ways of behaving toward one another. And that somehow in Jesus' life and his journey toward Easter and through it, there is this um, invitation to participate in kind of being freed from those modes of being in the world. Those, that kind of enslavement to, to harmful ways of living toward one another or even to our, toward ourselves, right? So that's one of the things that's going on there. And then there's this particular language of like Jesus um, dying um, as like a sacrifice. There's some of that language as well. And that's where things get a bit interesting. Um, and, and even talk of like Jesus atoning for our sin. And atoning is like language from, again, um, ancient Near Eastern society where there was, a, there was sort of a making right with God and that would be atonement. Uh, and often each different nations would have their whole systems of 
sacrifice and priesthood, and they, would, they called them the cultic, or we call them the cultic systems, which are their systems essentially of how they go about getting in a good place with their gods. And, um, and the New Testament talks about Jesus somehow atoning for sin. Sometimes it talks about taking sins upon himself and so on. This kind of, this kind of language, right, which isn't there. Um, now, I guess what's interesting to note is that this is a very Jewish way of talking about the suffering of someone who is faithful to God. So when I, again, like I remember when I first said um, the F word, this might seem like a tangent, but it's highly relevant. Um, and I was at, at school, Mayfair Primary School in Hastings, and I was walking across the field with my friend David, and he said a sentence that had the F word in it, and so I did too. I'm sorry. Don't be, don't be sorry. It's okay. Oh, wow. Empathy comes from the unlikeliest of places. <laughs> Um, and and I repeated it without thinking, and then I was, because I was a very earnest, you know, tract-giving-out kind of Christian uh, seven-year-old, I became suddenly struck with how this was another sin that was going on the shoulders of Jesus on the cross, you know, because essentially Jesus was like bearing all our sins in, uh, on the cross, and that meant every time, you know, every time I did another thing, that was another thing that Jesus would now be conscious, you know, so was, uh, there's a slight time loop sort of, time travel problem in the logic of it, but at least this is the way that um, I was making sense of it as like a kid at the time. And I think lots of people are taught to think a bit like that somehow. All of your sins were laid upon the back of Jesus and then God dished out this punishment upon Jesus that should have been yours, but he did it on Jesus instead, which I'm not sure is like the surprising good news of the gospel. I feel, you know, that's just me. Um, because what's going on here is that when Paul, for example, uses this language, he's doing something quite Jewish, which is to talk about this kind of living faithfully to God um, and even to the point of death when we have not done so. And so even Judas Maccabeus, who I mentioned earlier, who you can read about if you read 1 and 2 Maccabees, um, which you might find in probably in a Catholic Bible. I think they still have the Maccabees uh, in a Catholic Bible. You can read about that story. But like in... In Second Maccabees, uh, there's language about how the martyrs in that revolution died as sacrifices of atonement for the sins of the people, right? And what they don't mean there is that all the sins of everybody across all of time were piled on the shoulders of these martyrs and they died as atoning sacrifices for, you know, for us in that sense. But that somehow we got ourselves into this place because of how um, harm, like how much we've participated in harm and violence and all of these different ways of, of being in the world. We've been unfaithful. And now along has come someone who has been faithful and they followed that faithful, you know. And so the story of Jesus is not that he was faithful in his violent revolution. What the early Christians were sort of caught by was this idea that Jesus' kind of faithfulness was to, to follow his vision of the kingdom all the way through so that even when he was on the cross and being um, this, this moment of execution was being carried out up on the cross when people are saying, come down then, come on down and show us what you got. Uh, instead, he's, he's up there and says, forgive them for they, know, they don't know what they're doing. Right? So this, he's followed this kind of logic of enemy love all the way through to his own death which is a really kind of profound idea, I think. And because of this kind of faithfulness to God and this vision of the kingdom, that somehow his faithfulness has atoned for our sins. Right? Um, so it's not necessarily like um, the chasm idea, where God is over there and we're over there and there's a big fiery pit at the bottom that you've, and the only way you can get across is by is by Jesus' death as much as it is somehow they were captured by, the, by, this, by this figure, Jesus. And in particular, I guess, because of the symbol of his, of his rising, this becomes like this um, emergence of, of life that, that flows through their sense of what this kind of vision of life, of, of a way of being in the world could look like. So um, in their language of like Jesus bore our sins, right? 
is that Jesus experienced the full force of human violence and harm and stayed faithful to his vision of God's way of being in the world and in doing so um, did something that we were all unable to do. And I say we as in that's the way they were writing about it then. And the ongoing invitation is to reflect on whether that's still like a relevant story for us now. Um, so that's one thing to say about that. I don't know if, how that sits with you, if that's controversial or not, but it's what I'm going to say. Um, the New Testament text then also like extend that imagery a bit. And so they start to say that um, they do start to get kind of mystical in their reflection on this Easter event. So they start to say things like, um, we can come to identify with the death and resurrection of Jesus also in our own lives. And so um, we can allow, we can die to those ways of causing harm and pain and suffering in the world um, and our exclusion and our, all of the things that we do like that. And we can experience the new life of what it is to live into this vision of love, even at the point of loving those who are on the edges and and who aren't like us. Um, and that somehow we are almost like, it's like we're participating, participating in the dying and the rising by dying to those ways of being and rising to these other ways of being. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'll take some nods. That'll do. Um, and so in this kind of view, like every little act of, you know, every participation in an act of kindness or small act of grace or moment of humility or act of beauty or creativity or love or caring for creation, these are all ways of like participating in this new kind of life symbolized by this resurrection motif, this resurrection imagery. Um, and so this kind of Jesus dies for our sins language um, can be understood as like Jesus' death in itself symbolizing a dying to all of that that kind of um, the, the, the ego competitions that are kind of rife in our communities, the, the wrestling and jostling for power that we engage in all the time in all sorts of very small and also large ways. You don't have to look too far around the world to see the, the jostling of egos and power that goes on. And then also you probably, if you're in a workplace or anything like that, you don't have to look too far from, um, from there to also find little like, you know, our, our egos are a um, fun thing, aren't they? It's a great time. All our issues colliding in community. It's beautiful. Um, and so there's this challenge, there's this invitation to go, okay, can we pursue a different way of being in the world? And what might that look like? Okay. Two more things quickly, and then I'll finish. Uh, the second thing is I think this story reframes our view of God um, or ultimate reality, whatever language you, you give to that. Um, and that matters because what, we've, what we think kind of lies at the very core of things shapes so much of how we live in the world what we think truly matters, uh, what we think is ultimately most real or most powerful or most true. And for many in the ancient world, God or the gods were to be feared. You were anxious all the time about whether or not the gods were okay with you. And if they weren't, then you needed to like compensate and make that up somehow, through maybe through sacrifices or through better devotion or through following the rules um, better. But in this story, the the invitation is to see a different kind of divine presence, which is not like a scowling God um, deciding whether or not enough has been done to placate his kind of sense of being upset about things. And instead, a God who becomes present to us or divine presence uh, among us in solidarity with our, with our pain and with our experience of being human. And rather than blame and judgment, it becomes this offer of presence and of vulnerability and of healing. Um, and even, you know, even forgiveness that's offered for those who are haunted by their kind of their own past or their own actions, which many of us are. Many of us, um, even if we're not used to language of 
sin and all that kind of stuff uh, still carry with us things we've said and done in our lives that maybe we wish we hadn't um, and don't always know what to do with that. And so there's this invitation to see God as the one or uh, as who who offers forgiveness freely in that space uh, and again continues to invite us to to then experience new life and a different way of being. Um, and we see that in like Jesus' story. He goes around forgiving people all over the place when he's not supposed to. And he doesn't say, you know, you'll be forgiven when I die in about 15 months, you know. He just says, you're forgiven, right? Be free. It's this beautiful reconfiguration of how we think about God. And I think about that even in terms of, you know, we might not have the ancient gods with us now in, at least in our part of the world, um, whom we're constantly trying to impress. But I feel like we kind of do at the same time. They just might not be deities in the traditional sense. But we, a lot of people live with the constant anxiety of, do I measure up? Am I enough? Am I doing enough? And, you know, is whoever pleased with me, am I looking okay to everybody? Uh, and our anxiety epidemic kind of at the moment, you know, says to us that we still wrestle with the old gods. We've just called them different things. And, um, and so this invitation to see the divine as something other than that, to see the divine instead in terms of... Um, that which gifts you dignity and value and identity and deep worth and that, you know, um, that doesn't depend on anything other than gift and grace. Um, so that's one thing I want to say about God. I suppose if I was going to say anything else about God, yeah, I'll say one more thing about God. All right. Um, is there's this strong suggestion in the Easter story that God is not out there somewhere. Um, one of the things that happens when Jesus dies is that the way the story unfolds in the Gospels is there's this curtain in the temple that separates where God was supposed to live from everybody else, right? The the Holy of Holies, as it was called in the Jewish temple. And there's a big curtain so that you couldn't go in there unless you're the high priest. And the curtain tears apart. And it's it's an interesting thing because in a sense the curtain tears apart and what you find is that um, God is not in there, um, in the sense that they understood that. Um, instead, in, you know, in, in Jesus' own parables, God is found in the eyes of the prisoner and the stranger and the hungry and the poor and the naked. Um, that's where God is to be found. God is to be found in the faces and eyes of the people around you and especially the excluded ones, you know. And so uh, later on, Paul will talk about like, the fact that you are you are the temple where God dwells. So instead of there like being a special place behind the curtain where God hangs out, uh, where God hangs out, where God is present, if you like, is in um, the faces of one another, the lives of one another. Uh, this is where the presence and love of God is woven through. Um, and so that imagery of you are the temple becomes a symbol of where God is to be found. So, not grumpy old dude, up there, peering over, looking disappointed. Last thought then, and I guess that comes as kind of a, a culmination of all of this in terms of the way I understand the language of salvation itself. And um, I think our sort of Salvation is how we get to heaven story has kind of messed up our, our sense of how we, how we can understand what's going on with this kind of language. Um, but the way I understand it, I suppose, is that I think we need saving all the time. I think we need saving from our own egos um, that threaten to take over. We need saving from the misuse of power. We need saving from all of the ways in which we can participate in harmful and corrupt ways of being in the world, the way we treat our environment. You know, we need kind of saving and liberating from what we do to ourselves and to one another. And um, 
the suggestion seems to be here as far as in the way that I read the story is that that salvation can be found in seeking to follow this way. Um, these early Christians were called followers of the way because they were trying to live this out. They were trying to figure out how to follow that path, follow that way. And it was much less about sort of, do you believe the 20 fundamental truths of the Christian community? And it was much more about how do we live differently in the world? And as we do so with one another, we will experience forgiveness for ourselves and also we will find ways to forgive one another. We will work out peace among ourselves without having to threaten one another with violence. We will, um, you know, and, and the early Christian communities are kind of a testimony of that. They are... Um, they became a problem to the Roman Empire as the churches spread, um, not because of their sort of weird religious claims, and actually, but um, because they were disrupting the stability of the system of the empire by having slaves and um, women and all sorts of people who in Roman society were um, down the chain coming to find equal and full participation within the life of these communities. And that was threatening the stability of the empire because the empire was built on this very strong system that came from the empire, emperor and all the way down. Uh, and so this kind of vision of a different kind of life um, became the way in which they outworked their salvation. So we have this kind of um, phrase that, that Paul uses that I often quote, which is, I guess, a famous one of his, but that there is no longer slave nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Greek, all are one in Christ. And for him, what that meant is that somehow, if we follow the way of Christ, all of those things that we use to divide ourselves and create hierarchies of power over one another are being dismantled in this new vision of what it is to be human. And um, that's not just like a social vision, it also becomes a very personal experience of allowing our stories we tell ourselves to be changed. Okay. That's Easter from my perspective. So there you go, Reframing Easter. I hope you found something in that interesting, meaningful, helpful. Pick your word. Thanks as always to Reese Michelle for his help in taking this audio, making it sound good in your ears. Until next time.